sense his presence, his love, and his power. And may you be willing to reach out and, and tell him how you long to worship him and praise him and glorify him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God of creation and the God of salvation and the God of grace. Guide us as we spend time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to focus on me for a few moments, even though it's dark. I asked them to turn the lights down. We'll turn them back up in a moment. Okay? I just want you to... I'm going to mention something, but don't want you looking at that until I tell you to, okay? It's not because I want the focus on me. I want the impact to be where it needs to be. When was the last time you noticed the stained glass windows that circle the church. Don't look yet. Okay? When was the last time? Stay focused for a few more moments. When you did look at them before, did you look at them for their brilliance? And they are brilliant. Now you may look. When you come in here in the middle of the day when the shades are down and it's dark, these stained glass windows are brilliant. Did you notice them for their beauty? And they are beautiful, I think, don't you? Or did you notice them for their purpose? They are there to remind us of why we are here. We are here to worship the God whose story is told in these stained glass windows. I want you to stand with me. Just stand up where you are, those who can. If you can't stand, that's fine. Now, I want you to look and focus, first of all, on the first stained glass window. It's the story of the God who created us. The second one, you may turn and look at that one. It's the story of the fall and the God who remains faithful to his creation. The one that's next is the story of the Ten Commandments and God's law and God's revelation of his character to us through that law. The next one is the story of the incarnation and the story of Jesus coming to this earth so that he could fulfill the law in his life and make it possible for us to live for him. The next one has two meanings. It's the story of Jesus as the light of the world and as the word of God incarnate and how he came to reveal God the Father to us. The next one is, of course, the story of the cross and the resurrection, the story of that which gives us hope as God's people. The next one, I looked at what the original artist put in. That's supposed to be the victory of the Lamb. And that's okay. Artistry, you can be in the eye of the artist or those who behold it. But with the Christian flag there, it reminded me of of the Crusades, which isn't a good part of Christian history, but we're going to focus on that as as the story of God's people in the church in our series on the stained glass windows. And then, of course, the last one is the three angels' message leading to the second coming. Okay? You may be seated. Could we have the house lights back up, please? Did you notice something as you looked at those windows? Did you notice that the artist put two colored connecting ribbons that go through all the way around? 
once again, symbols of, in artistry, sometimes the meaning is in what the artist meant, but sometimes as those who observe it, you can come up with your own meaning. And, and as I sat, when we were, as a pastoral staff, trying to decide what we would preach on as a theme next, we were having what we call our extended personal communion with God. We do it once a month on the last Tuesday of, of every month. And for an hour and a half, we off, all go off on our own places. And I, I asked the staff, please pray about what we should be focusing on next. And I happened to come in the sanctuary. And it was a very dark, cloudy day, and the stained glass windows were brilliant. And now you know the rest of the story. I shared it with the staff. We talked about it. We decided that in April and May, we're going to do some sermons on the stained glass windows, a message from them. We're going to stop for the summer because so many people will be gone during that time. And then we're going to pick it up again in, in August, September, October, and November, and hopefully we'll get through them all. We can't promise. But the point is, we come and worship every single Sabbath, and we see this, and I wonder how many noticed those ribbons before. Okay? A few. As I've looked at them, as we've talked about them as staff, we've chosen to see them as the blue representing God's character. Now, one of the things that we've talked about staff is maybe, maybe it's the great controversy. And, and if you think about it, those two ideas aren't mutually exclusive. Because the great controversy is about God's character. The great controversy is the devil trying to, to assault God's character, to deny God's character, to defame God's character, and to get us focused away from God's character. And so we're going to cho choose to focus on God's character. The, the orange, we're choosing to see that as God's grace. And the reason we've chosen to see the orange as a symbol of God's grace is orange, at least to me, represents warmth and light and power. And it is God's grace that provides warmth in a cold world of sin. It is God's grace that provides the light of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is God's grace that provides power to transform our lives and to make our lives like His. And so we're going to be making connections as we talk about these stained glass windows between the character of God and God's actions in our behalf and the grace of God and how that grace is revealed to us as we take a tour through our sanctuary. And it is our desire and our prayer that when we finish the series and even, even as we begin the series today, that every time you come in this sanctuary to worship, you'll be reminded of the God we worship and whose story we, are, we will be looking at and whose story affects our lives. And so we're going to begin in the beginning. We're going to begin with looking at the God of creation. And I just want to start out by saying that I believe in the God who created heaven and earth. It's my belief. I cannot prove it. I can't prove he exists. I can't prove he created it but I believe it. You know, the, the Bible presupposes God's existence and God is creator. Very familiar verse. You know it very well. Genesis 1.1. You can, you can say it with me, won't you? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, it doesn't start out with, in the beginning there was a God, and let me prove to you how this God came about. 
It doesn't begin by saying, let me prove to you that God exists. It simply says, in the beginning, God. He was there. He's always been there. It presupposes God. I wish I could tell you I could prove God to you. No one can. Nor can anyone disprove God. We'll come to that part about proving him in a moment. Hang in there with me. There's another verse of Scripture that presupposes God. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. It's from the New Living Translation. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It's interesting what the author of Hebrews is trying to do in this statement. He's talking about those in Hebrews chapter 11 who did not realize the things that they had faith in God for, Abraham and Isaac and all the rest, and how eventually in the core of that chapter it talks about that they were looking for a heavenly city to come. And the author here uses the creation story to say those of you who wonder if you really have faith even though you can't see this, the, the new Jerusalem, even though you, you can't see the, through the heavens to see what it's going to be like, you still believe it, and you can believe it because we look backward at the creation, and we believe that by faith too. In his commentary on Hebrews 11, William Barclay says, the writer to the Hebrews, faith is absolute certainty that it believes that what is true and that it, what it expects to take place. It is not the hope which looks forward with wistful longing. It is the hope which looks forward with utter conviction. And in order to say we can look forward with utter conviction, the writer of the Hebrews says we look back with utter conviction too. The Bible affirms God as creator. I want you to notice, you may not notice, I looked up in in Nave's topical Bible and there were 120 passages that refers to God as creator in the Bible. Now, now, that's not individual verses. That's passages. There are chapters like Genesis 1 and Job 38 that deal verse upon verse about God as creator. But there are 120 passages. There are 53 that refer to him as the creator of man, of you and me. There are three that I found that refer to the Holy Spirit as creator. And there are others that allude to it. That's a lot of verses, isn't it? The Bible confirms God as creator. I want to refer to to one of the verses, it's on the screen, that that, uh, was read this morning. It's a verse that the angels sing in heaven, the 24 elders sing in heaven, according to Revelation. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, and power. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. One of the very reasons we worship God is because he is the creator, the awesome creator. I believe there is enough evidence to believe in God as the creator. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, I don't believe in God because it's hope against hope. I don't believe in God as a creator because, well, it's just a leap of faith I take and hope it's true. 
I think there's a number of reasons why I believe in God as creator. I want to share them with you. First of all, everything I know has a cause. Everything that has matter has something that put it together. If, if I were to take... If I were to take Stephen Kramer's little car, a smart car, we could probably drive it in through the doors, it's so small, and take it apart, clean it up, Hans, we wouldn't get grease on the carpet, okay? And I were to take it apart one night and leave the pieces here, and you were to see it, and Stephen, we're not going to do that, okay? And you came in the next day, and it was fully assembled again, what would you think? And if you came to me and I said, well, you know, I came in this morning and it was all together. It just went together. Is there anyone in this room who would believe me for one second? No. Everything we know that, that is built or put together has something behind it. I, I believe that there's enough evidence to believe in God as creator because the mathematical odds against natural selection or the Big Bang Theory is just too great. You've got a better chance of winning the lottery back-to-back buying one ticket, and probably even greater than that, than someone does of having just something come out of nothing because it just happens. Third reason I believe in God is Creator the growing diversity and uncertainty in the scientific community. A number of things have happened in the last 50 or so years. Um, some of them really huge in terms of astronomy and, and the Hubble sp- telescope that lets us see out into the future and, the, and the, the fact that there is an expanding universe and not a shrinking one. Molecular biology that looks at all the, the DNA and all the cells is, is telling scientists, wait a minute, there's something that goes against natural selection here. And, and there are those who, who are willing to step forward, and, and, and they're not quite willing to say there's a God, but, but now they're talking about intelligent design, maybe by an alien. Stephen Hawking, one of, one of the world's most renowned physicists, has come out in favor of intelligent design, and he's been criticized by many in his community because of that. And he says, well, I believe in intelligent design, but I just can't believe in a God. He has his own reasons. I I believe in God as creator because of my personal experience. My backpacking trips, I look out at that starry heaven and see the handiwork of God. I look out across the valleys and the mountains and I see God's footprints. I look at those flowers growing out of cracks of rock that have no business being there. And they're so delicate and the rock's so hard. And I see God's creativity. I think back to when Audrey and, and Daniel, my little girl was born. I held her in my arms for the first time. And there was the miracle of birth and creation of life. My son, too. I've just seen God at work in so many ways in so many people's lives that to deny his power to create is beyond me. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the New Living Translation, puts it this way. 
Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse, no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. When you read some of the scientists who refuse to acknowledge God, most of them simply say, you, you can't prove it, so I refuse to believe it. There was one, a Professor Wald, who was at the University of Harvard in 1954, in his book, The Origin of Life, said that spontaneous generation, the belief in spontaneous generation, that life arose from non-living matter, was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That leaves us with the only possible conclusion that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation arising to evolution. Quite an admission. I'm not here to simply bash those who believe in evolution. I am here to try and say that there are many of us, many people who didn't leave their mind outside their door when they left in the morning and ended up believing in a God who created the heavens and the earth. That there is reason and evidence for our faith. Neither creationism nor evolution in its various forms can be proven. Neither theory or belief system is without question or dilemmas. However, I do object to those who view creationism, as I said, as a mindless or naivete in their approach to the origins of life. A recent anonymous poll of scientists asking if they believe in creation in some form, either in theistic evolution, intelligent design, or a literal creation in seven days was made. And those who answered, are you ready for this one? 40% said they believed in an intelligent design of some sort. That's not the impression you get when you hear the news or when you hear what's, watch the programs on TV about nature. Now, to be honest and to be fair, other polls have been taken by the scientific community in which they ask them at scientific conventions, what do you believe? And they say only 3% believe in God. And there's probably two things going on. They're downplaying the way they ask the questions, and those who ask the questions on the other survey were asking it in a different way. But secondly, there is an admission that there's pressure put on scientists to keep, to keep to the scientific statements. At the same time, let's never minimize the fact that there are questions and there are dilemmas. But my personal belief, and I'm not going to go into any more into the debate about evolution or creation, the rest of the sermon I want to focus on the God of creation. My personal belief is in a recent seven days of creation. At the same time, I will not belittle, I will not berate, I will not besmear, I will not besearch those who have a different view or understanding of creation. Nor will I use unchristlike attitudes or actions to try to get them to change. We need to have open dialogue, not build barriers. I believe 
in a literal seven-day creation. I believe in a recent, I just want to say it for emphasis, I believe in a recent young earth. I can't prove it, but I believe it. Let me just share something with you. I'm going to use a very dangerous illustration for a moment. It's not dangerous because it's going to do some harm, but it's dangerous because I may lose your train of thought for a few moments. I would like you to use your imagination. That's not dangerous. I would like you to use your imagination and think about your most favorite food. Now you know why it's dangerous. I would like you to think about your favorite food. I don't care whether it's an entree, a dessert, a vegetable, a a fruit, uh, there's not much else, okay? I'd like you to think about your favorite food. And I'd like you to imagine that whatever that favorite food is, that you are standing either in front of a market or at a restaurant and it's behind a display case and you are extremely hungry. And you sit there and you look at your favorite food. Now, I I know what mine would be. And, 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 and sometimes it changes, but today I know what mine would be. Mine would be Vivian's chocolate chip pie. Yeah. If you haven't had it, you've missed something. Vivian's chocolate chip pie, it's very smooth and, and rich and just goes, it, with a glass of milk, there's nothing like it, okay? If I were standing in front of a display case, and Vivian's chocolate chip pie were in that display case, I wouldn't be standing there for long. But imagine you've got your favorite food, whatever it is. And a friend comes up and they say, what are you looking at? And they say, oh, I'm looking at my favorite food. Where is it? It's right there. You going to eat it? No. Why are you looking at it? Well, I'm remembering the ingredients in it. I know all about that, that, that food. I know what it contains. Vivian's chocolate chip pie has chocolate and it has some, whip, I think it's whipped cream and has this eggshell kind of egg, uh, I don't know. Vivian's looking at me and going, be quiet, okay. But, but I know what, what the texture is and I know what it tastes like, you know. I could talk all about it. But, but if I just talked about it and I never got behind the counter to get it out or had somebody get it out for me, wouldn't you think I was a little odd? Can you imagine standing there in front of your favorite dessert, entree, whatever, and you're extremely hungry, and you just look at it and never do anything about it? Or does there come a time when you're going to go and you're going to make sure you get it? And you can satisfy that hunger and that, have that taste in your mouth and enjoy what is your favorite food. You know, my desire, not just for this morning, but for the entire series is not just that we will get information from the stories behind these windows about God. My desire is that as we go through this series, is that we will experience God for ourselves. In Psalm 34, the psalmist said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Oh, taste and experience it. I'm not saying we should have a religion devoid of understanding and teaching and doctrine. What I'm saying is, if that's all we have, we've missed the point of what God's all about. 
Because God's all about knowing you and loving you and being with you. It's all about bringing you back to himself. That's the experience he wants to have with you and with me. So with that in mind, that what we're going to be talking about is experiencing God and not just knowing facts about him, and I hope I haven't caused you to, to forget about what the sermon's about and just focus on your food. But let's come back to this amazing God of creation. I, I was at a seminar this week. The last devotional on Wednesday morning was by Elder Jim P- Pedersen, president of Northern California Conference. And as I listened to what he was saying, I could not believe it. He was giving my sermon. I mean, not the same sermon, but the same basic essential message. What, what he said was, the problem we have is, is that we have lost our sense of wonder and awe of God. We've lost our sense of wonder and awe of God. When was the last time you were in awe of God so that you could hardly say anything? I can tell you when it was for me. It was this morning when I looked out my window and saw the snow on the mountains. Anybody see that this morning? It was incredible. We get so used to things, we, we, we lose our wonder and awe at this awesome God who created. We need to recapture the wonder and awe and magnificence of God in order to truly experience Him, worship Him, and tell others about Him. We're not just telling people facts about Him, we're telling people about this God who wants to enter into our lives and change us and, and, and to, to enable us to be the people He called us to be. And so this morning I want to commend to you the God of creation. God is an awesome creator because he is a God of order. He's a God of order. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, as Susan shared this morning with the children, the order of creation is incredible. For someone in that day and age to write an order of creation without knowing as much about science as we do now is incredible. For me, if it was a long period of time, how could he create the trees on the third day and wait thousands and thousands of years to the fourth day when the sun and the moon and the stars would come out? The trees would have died long ago. Not only that, but you need the trees for photosynthesis to take place. So before there's any fish or birds, there's trees and plants in the sea. Before there's animals, there's the food chain of fish and birds, etc. It just makes sense when you study and look at, at the order of when he created what. Secondly, as, as you look at the picture on the screen, you can see that they're, they're, he is a God of order. If any of these planets were off just a little bit, our, our little uh, galaxy would be in huge trouble. It would cease to exist. He is a God of order. He's a God of order. What's interesting also is in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about the fact 
that the plants were to be recreate and reproduce each after its what? Own kind. And that the, the, the fish of the sea and the living things in the sea were to cre- be created each after its own kind. And the animals were to be recreated each after its own kind. And God pronounced them all good. There's an order to creation. He is a God of order. This God who created, created laws of science and laws, of, laws of, of nature because he's a God of order. I believe God is an awesome creator because he is a God of wisdom or a God of omniscience. If you have your pew Bibles, turn to Psalm 104, verses 24 and 25. I want you to look it up in the scripture for yourself. It's page, uh, I forgot the page, it's page 503 in the pew Bible. Psalm 104, 24 to 25. I want you to notice what the psalmist said. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. In wisdom you have made them. Or Isaiah 40, verse 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28, found on page 600. Isaiah begins by asking a question. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His understanding is unsearchable. I believe that God is the creator because he's a God of wisdom and understanding. He is omniscient. He knows so much. He knows it all. I believe that God is the creator God because he's a God of power. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Or Psalm 95, verses 1 to 6, on page 499 of your pew Bible. Psalm 95, 1 to 6. Please turn to that and, and read it with me. It was already read once before when the, during the worship time of, of music. When we get to verse 6, I want you to read verse 6 with me. When we get to verse 6, read verse 6 with me. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Ready? O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He's a God of power. I'm glad it doesn't stop there. When we think of people who are people of power, we often wonder if they're going to misuse that power. Not God the creator. Why? 
because the God, the Creator, is also a God of holiness. Isaiah 45, 11 and 12, page 606 in your pew Bibles. Isaiah 45, verses 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed Him, Ask of me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. You see, we don't have to fear a God of power who created us because he's also a holy God, a God who will do that which is only right, that which is only fair, that which is only just, that which you can trust time after time after time. Isaiah 17, 7, page 580 in your pew Bible. Talking about a future day. It says, In that day man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. This is Hebrew parallelism, where one line is explained by the next. A man will look to his maker, and his maker is the Holy One of Israel. We can trust the God of power because he's a holy God. It doesn't stop there. I believe in God as the creator because he is a God of beauty. Psalm 8, verses 1 to 4, page 450 in your pew Bible. Psalm 8, verses 1 to 4. Most of us are very familiar with this passage. It's something that, that we've looked at and we've thought of when we've been out walking at night when we've been camping, when we've been out places where the lights of the city are faded and we can look up in heaven and see the stars. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Anybody been out at night in the stars and felt about this high besides me? He's an awesome God. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to be reading it from the New Living Translation. I'd like you to listen to the way it's described. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'm sorry, that's Psalm 8, Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth. And their words to all the world... God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The word beauty is not mentioned in these verses. But don't you see the word beauty in those verses? It talks about sunrises and sunsets. It talks about mountains and peaks. It talks about stars in the heaven. It talks about God, the grandeur and the greatness and the beauty of God's creation. And this is in a world of sin. Can you imagine what it must have looked like before sin entered? I can't wait to see it again. Can you? 
But above all, I believe in the God of, uh, who created because he is a God of love. He is a God of love. And once again, because he is a God of love, he will not misuse his power. He will not abuse his power. He will not misuse his omniscience. He will use his wisdom and his understanding and his power to reveal his love to you and to me. Psalm 33, verses 4 through 9. The God of love. I I wrote that text down wrong. I, I, I apologize. Psalm 33, 4 through 9. The word of the Lord holds true, and we can trust everything he does. He loves whatever is just and good. The unfailing love of the Lord does what fills the earth. The unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. From the very first day he created it. The Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. When you look at the stained glass window with the hand of God coming down, describing some of the very verses we read this morning, you don't need a great message every Sabbath morning to get a blessing. You don't need a great message. I'll do my best to give messages. Don't misunderstand me. You don't need the right favorite song that you like singing and the kind of music you like to sing in order to worship God. All you've got to do is be reminded that you're worshiping the creator God of the universe. And we should be in awe of him. There is a very familiar hymn that really takes us from creation all the way around the room to the second coming. You sang the chorus of it earlier with, uh, with the praise team. It's how great thou art. The first two verses talk about God the creator. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the roaring thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. What a grand theme for contemplation. And sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. The second verse talks about us going through the forest glades and hearing the birds singing sweetly in the trees, looking down from lofty mountain grandeur and see the brook and feel the gentle breeze, his creation. Verse 3 goes on to say, And when I think that God his Son, not sparing over here, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. When Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation, and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart, then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Now to the immortal God, 
whose power, whose majesty, whose greatness we have seen in his creation. To God our creator be honor and praise forever and ever. May he bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.